Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hand upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of God. Well, good afternoon, church family. I want to set a scene for you. The year is 1924. The place is Paris, France. And the setting, the occasion, is the Olympics. Something unheard of has just taken place. One of the top runners at a very popular event, the 100 meters race, has announced he will not even participate in the prelims for his race because he is a follower of Jesus and it goes against his conviction that he shouldn't run on the Sabbath. People are shocked. You've trained your whole life or a good deal of it for this. And you're going to throw away your chance? The man's name, as many of you know, is Eric Liddell. He was a Scotsman and a great follower of Jesus. And he said, I, I am not going to run the 100 meters, but I'll tell you what, I will run still. So I'll run in the 200 and the 400, which was not a race he had particularly trained for or anybody thought he'd be particularly good at. But Liddell stayed true to his beliefs and as the story goes, if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, it tells the immortality of the story that he runs. And not only does he take bronze in the 200, he ends up winning gold in the 400. And it's incredible. It's an incredible feat and a great story of faith. But that's not all there was to the story. And in fact, Liddell gave a quote not long afterwards that hinted at what he'd always been thinking of. When asked about that experience, he said, it has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games. 
and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Lydell knew something that Moses is trying to get us to see, and his life would go on to testify to it. You see, in 1924, he won the bronze and the gold, and the very next year, instead of training and returning to the Olympics, where he most likely could have won multiple gold medals, he went and joined in missionary service to go back to the place he was born and live as a missionary in China. From 1925 until his death in 1945, Eric Liddell would stay in China except for two brief furloughs. And he remained there even when he had chances to leave. He died a prisoner in a Japanese internment camp in 1945 at the age of 43. Just prior before dying, some people asked him, Hey, do you regret any of the decisions you made? Do you think back and, and think, what, what could have been? What if? And Liddell very honestly answered, sometimes it's natural for a chap to think over all of that stuff. But I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more at this than the other. Liddell understood a truth that Moses wants us to see today in this psalm, that we can live for something that matters. We can choose to live life for something that matters. Today, that's my prayer as we come and we learn from Moses in the psalm. Would you join in praying with me and asking God to help us to hear and learn today? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the example of men and women who have gone before us. I pray, God, today you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts and minds to know and believe. Teach us. Speak as you desire, God, and let your name be glorified, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today as we come to our psalm, Moses is the author, and he's the man of God, Moses. And I believe there are two foundational sets of truths that Moses is reflecting on in the first 11 verses of our psalm. And then from that, he's going to give us a handful of responses on how we should live our life for God. And so I want to turn to these two truths first. Um, I'm going to warn you, they're wildly popular truths uh, about our own mortality and the wrath of God. So it's a great place to jump in. But I promise you, if you stay with me, if you stay with Moses and listen here, there is goodness for us in this. A truth God wants us to learn. So this first truth that Moses is reflecting on is that God is infinite and man is finite. God is infinite. And man is finite. We see this in verses 1 through 6. Moses starts by reflecting on the truth that God has always been man's dwelling place. This, this phrase could be translated refuge. He says, in all generations. So from the beginning of man, our home, our resting place has been God. We are made by God for God. But Moses goes even further in verse 2 and says, before not just before man, but before the rest of creations, before the mountains and the earth. God, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. Moses is reflecting on this truth that God always has been. There never was a time when God was not. 
God from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Well, in juxtaposition to this, Moses thinks about the nature of man. And we see in verses 3 through 4, he tells us man is finite. He thinks back to Genesis and says, we came from dust and we know ultimately this, this physical body will return to dust. And he says, not only that, we know it's from God. God's the one that returns us to dust. And Moses says, he's trying to get through in his own mind, I think he's trying to help us understand, God is different than us. Right? We are not like God. God is not like his creation. God is not like any part of the creation. He's not dependent upon anything else or anyone else. He always has been and always will be God. But there was a time when we were not. There was a time when we didn't exist. Our life is dependent upon God because from God we came and to God we'll return. Moses does, does a little interesting thought experiment here in verse 4 to help us think about how God is not like us. And he says, particularly, God, this is the hard part because we live in time, but God's time, time is not like that for God, how it is for us. So I want you to join with me in trying to think about what Moses asked us to do here. So I'm going to ask you, if you've got to close your eyes to focus, do that. Um, if not, just think. But I want you to pause for a moment, and I want you to think about the last 1,000 years. I want you to think about it, try to hold it in your mind. Think about as much as you can that has happened in the last 1,000 years. Think back. Man, that goes back a long way. I immediately thought back all the way. It's, this is like pre-Black Death, right? And then the plague. And then I thought of like the Reformation and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And then think about the birth of our own nation and all the revolutions over in Europe. Think about the rise of the slave trade and the abolishment of the slave trade. And I thought about just like in the last hundred years, the modernization of, of life. And I thought about sports because that's what I care about a lot. And I thought about how many titles did Bill Russell and LeBron James and Michael Jordan win? And like how many World Series have the Astros won? So many. And then like I thought about all these different things. And I thought, man, a lot has happened happened in a thousand years it's hard to hold on to but then Moses says okay I want you to hold that thought and I'll take another one I want you to think about this is going to be hard everything that happened in the last four hours four hours okay it didn't take nearly as long to think about that one probably right most of us probably immediately can think yeah yeah okay like I was getting ready for church hanging out maybe lunch Moses says, a watch in the night, it's four hours long. For God, what is momentous to us, a thousand years, for God, it's like four hours to him. Everything you thought of in that thousand years, for God, it's like the last four hours for you. God is not like us. God is different than us. God is outside of time and we are within it. And Moses says, look, our life is fleeting before God. Life comes and goes. In verses 5 and 6, he drives us home even more by these three quick illustrations. He says, life is like a flood. The flood comes and it wipes away everything that's not rooted. So is life. Like a dream that comes and goes before it is even fully remembered. So is life. Like grass that grows in the early of day and by the end of that same day is withering, decaying, and dying. Such is life for man. 
Our life is but a moment. And Moses reminds us, all of this is from God. God is the one who gives us life, and he's the one that has given us limitations in our life. God is God. He is infinite, and we are finite. Well, if that has uh, brightened your mood a lot, I have good news. It gets worse before it gets better. Because Moses says the second truth he's reflecting on is this, that man is sinful and God has righteous wrath towards sin. Man is sinful, he's messed up, he's broken, and God is not. And so he righteously has wrath, anger against the brokenness. We see this in verses 7 through 11. And I want us to think for a moment about Moses' context as he's probably writing this. Think about the life of Moses and the great experiences this man of God has been through. The highs, the lows, living in Pharaoh's court and then being in exile in the wilderness by himself and then later wandering around with the Israelites. The deliverance of uh, God's people through the plagues and then seeing the promised land but not getting to go in. Moses knows the goodness of God. He knows that God is just and righteous and faithful, and provides for his people, and that he is the great and mighty deliverer. But Moses also knows intimately within himself, and from spending a lot of time with God's people, the people are broken. We're all broken. Paul would go on to write in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages, what we've earned by our sin, is death. Separation from God. And Moses was reflecting on this truth. Though God is good and just and righteous, he is right to be angry against sin because it is an outlash, a, a outcry against his good creation. God created everything perfect and we chose sin and marred the masterpiece of God. And so God looks on it in anger and rightly has wrath towards this. Moses says, reminds us in verse 7, God is in control, and that even our end comes from him. And rightly so. In verse 8, he reminds us that our lives are lived before God. Right? That nothing we ever do is hidden from God. God is light. The darkness will be exposed. And so every hidden sin, every secret will be exposed. It's plain as day before God. Right? The thousand years is four hours. God has the time for it. God sees us. He knows us fully. Moses says we pass our days away under God's wrath. And again, rightfully so. And in case we didn't think about it or or missed it, Moses wants to remind us we are responsible. It's not God's fault. We chose. He says we bring our years to an end like a sigh. By our own doing, we chose to move away from God and have earned the death, the separation that Moses is looking to, the wrath, the anger of God. Moses, uh, in verse 10, says something that's even pretty bleak for Ecclesiastes, as we've spent much time there. He looks and says, our life is 70 years, if we're strong, maybe 80. But then he says, this word next in this next part of the verse, span, could be translated, or probably better translated, pride. He says, the pride of our years is toil and trouble. 
The New International Version translates this says, even the good part of our life is sorrow and suffering. This is Moses, the man of God. The man that has literally seen a glimpse of God's glory. And he says, life is short. Even the best parts are toil and trouble. We live, we have problems, then we die and we face bigger eternal problems. Because what can we do before our righteous creator? And this is where he ends up in verse 11. None of us fully understand God's wrath and the looming reality of death. Right? That's the rhetorical question he says here. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We are impermanent and God is permanent. We are sinful and God is righteous. So the question is left hanging in the air. What are we to do? What are we to do? If these truths are real, as Moses is reflecting on them, and I believe they are, the question Moses is left hanging there is, what are we to do? And thankfully, we see from the rest of Moses' response, now there is good news. There is good news. Moses' response, as he continues to pray to God, shows us the first thing we should do, and we must do, is cry out to God for mercy and gain life. Friends, this is the good news. We see this throughout his whole response in verse 12 and 17, but particularly look at verse 13. Moses says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Moses knows God is a mighty deliverer. He's seen God deliver his people. He knows God alone can save. And so he has faith that God will not leave his people in sin indefinitely. That he will make a way. And so Moses is looking forward to something greater. The author of Hebrews tells us this later in Hebrews 11. I want to read that for us. Hebrews 11 verses 24 through 27. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Moses in his day. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." Friends, this is the good news that we call the gospel. What Moses looked forward to in faith and hope, we get to look back on and know fully in the face of Jesus. God made a way when there was no way, and his name was Jesus. We rightfully have earned death before God, but God did not leave us in that position. God looks on our days as passing under wrath, but when we come to Jesus, he no longer sees that, but now sees the righteousness of Christ in our place. We no longer have to fear death as our ultimate enemy because we have true life in God. Jesus himself came. The Son of God took on flesh and lived the perfect life that we have all failed to live. Then died the death we deserved on the cross and then rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death. He has ascended to the right hand of God and one day he will return to judge the living and the dead and to renew all creation. 
And so we now live in that hope for anyone that acknowledges that they are part of the brokenness, that they are sinners and cries out to God for mercy and believes in Jesus, they will be saved. It's the good news of the gospel. And Moses' hope was staked on it even back then. He looks forward in hope and in faith to what God was going to do. He points us to the gospel and he knows that we only find life in God. So, the good news is that we can have life in God. God is infinite and man is finite. God is righteous and he is right to have anger toward our sin. But we can cry out to God, have mercy on us, and he will give us life in and through Jesus. So now the question is, what should we do with this life? How do we then live life for God? And this is what Moses spends the rest of his time looking at. So let's look at verse 12. The next thing Moses says is, if you want to know how to live life for God, you must face death to gain wisdom. Face death to gain wisdom. Look at verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is key to all of life. The Psalms tell us that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. The Proverbs tell us over and over again how important wisdom is. And, and Proverbs chapter 8 describes wisdom personified and says we should pursue wisdom at all costs. Pastor and author Tim, Tim, Timothy Keller says about wisdom that the wise do what they do not because it is satisfying or because it works, but because it is right and loving to God and his creation. Do you hear that? The wise do what they do, not because it, the wisdom itself is satisfying or because it works, it's pragmatic, but they do it because it's what's right and it's good for God and his creation. Wisdom is essential to a godly life. So Moses says, how do we gain a heart of wisdom? We count our days and face the reality of our own death. Maybe you think, whoa, 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 didn't you just say we got past the thinking about death and now we're all about the life in Jesus? Why are we going back to death now? And that's the paradox here. Moses says, if you want to know how to live a godly life, you've got to actually think about the reality of your own death. God has given us limitations And those limitations are for us to remember and to recognize so that they draw us back to God and remember the reality of who God is and who we are and reminds us of our dependence upon God. God, Moses knew that God wouldn't leave his people in sin indefinitely, but he also remembered that life is short and that time is different for God. God's timing is not his timing. And so Moses looks forward to something he will probably never see. He prays and recognizes that wisdom means embracing our God-given limitations and remembering God. When we live in the reality that our days are short, it will press us to live for what really matters. I'm going to say that again. When we live in the reality that our days are short, it will press us to live for what really matters. But this is important. Friends, this this is one of our great struggles we face. Just knowing that death intellectually is a thing that will happen 
is not the same as cognitively living before that reality in the way that Moses is calling us to now. Reflecting on the the reality of our own mortality. Listen to what Pastor J.D. Greer says about this. He says, The original lie that Satan whispered to Adam and Eve was, You will not surely die. He tried to blind her to the reality of death. It's still what he whispers in our subconscious today. Even when we know propositionally that we are going to die, he convinces us to live oblivious to how close the reality of death is and how permanent eternity will be. What Pastor Greer is trying to tell us is to think again. Moses wants us to look and face death because it reminds us of who God is and who we are. And that we have an enemy who's constantly trying to distract us. Who's constantly trying to speak that same original lie into our heads. Surely you will not die. We know death is real. We see it. And yet somehow that lie sneaks in. Surely you will not die. And we of all people live in the age of distraction. There's ever been a generation that has the opportunity to to really see this out. What it could mean to distract ourselves to death. We're there. I want to borrow another illustration that Pastor J.D. Greer used and ask you to imagine with me for a moment that you are at a party. We step back. It's a different setting. So I'm going to paint the picture of this party, what it would be awesome for me. So you can change the things up a little bit if you know, there'd be something that you don't like. That's, I'm just telling you because I'm the one saying it. It's going to be things that will be good for me. Okay. So you're at this party. It's a great party. Lots of people, people you love, great conversations happening. Great music, it's like like eclectic mix of music, Hamilton, like 90s hip-hop, classic rock. Uh, there's good food, pizza rolls have just come out of the oven, they're crispy, they're salty, they're actual pepperoni, it's wonderful. There's like multiple full-size basketball courts and everybody's hooping, and then like next to that, there's like Smash Bros and like FIFA and 2K, uh, and the party is just awesome. You're having a great time, the party is great. And as you're sitting there partying, suddenly there's a loud noise, And something crazy happens. This incredible abomination of a monster crashes through the glass and literally just grabs a person and mauls them in front of everybody. Drags the bloody corpse out of the house. Everybody screams. There's shock. There's awe. And then silence. For a few moments. 30, 45 seconds later, music kicks back up. Basketball game continues. Conversations start back up like nothing ever happened. Five minutes later, monster comes back, does it all again. Five minutes after that, monster comes back, does it all again until it becomes obvious that the monster is coming for everybody in the party. And yet, the party must go on. This was an illustration from the 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal that he used to describe what he thought was the greatest or one of the greatest risks to not facing our ultimate realities and particularly that we are mortal and that God is infinite and it's distraction. He said the monster is death. It's coming for us all. And yet, even 350 years before social media was around, Pascal understood and said, we choose our medication of choice is distraction, diversion. 
If we can just pretend long enough that it's not real or distract ourselves with enough things that we think are good or even maybe trick ourselves into using things that are good but using them for the wrong reasons, then we cannot face the things we actually need to think about, like the reality that death is coming for us all. Moses says, this is foolish. We can't distract ourselves. We have to face death. The reality that it's there. When we do this, God grants us wisdom to make the most of our short days. When we face the reality of death, God will grant us wisdom to make the most of our short days. And this is the good news from what we just talked about the point before. Because of the finished work of Christ, we can face death without ultimate fear or loss. Right? I know, I know personally, but I know for many of you, this is, this is hard. This is a wrestling for, for all of us. And death can be scary, especially thinking about our own death. Nobody wants to sit around morbidly thinking about when and how am I going to die? And yet Moses says, this is how we gain wisdom to make the most of our days now. You want to make your days count? Think about what is coming. Live in the reality of what is, not what you just hope there could be. By distracting yourself. Think about the good news of the finished work of Christ. And that we can join with Paul in saying, oh death, where is your sting? You have no power over me. We trust in God. We face death. And we gain wisdom to live life for him. Next we see Moses says, we must be satisfied in God alone. And so gain joy. Look at verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil. I love this verse. Verse 14 has become one of my most personal prayers over the last year. And God has continued to use this in my life. Uh, I was really excited. I, I didn't have it memorized. And then we did a prayer thing together with our college students. And it was a verse that was regularly used as a prayer prompt. And I don't know if it did it for them, what it did for me. But that reignited my soul in a way that was just teaching me to long for God again. And to look to God for my satisfaction. To be satisfied is to be fulfilled, to have a desire, a need fulfilled, or to be filled up. And the truth, the reality is we all have longings. We all have desires. God has made us that way. The question we have to face is how do we seek to fill them? What do you seek to satisfy you? Moses says there is one thing we truly need. One thing. Daily be filled with God's steadfast love. Says, oh God, if we would just wake up every morning and be satisfied, be filled to the brim with your steadfast love, there would be joy and gladness for all of our days. Oh, what a blessing. What a reality I want to walk in. That's something I want to know. It's become my prayer. Nothing else satisfies because God has made us for himself. Think about Ephesians 2.10 where Paul says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's masterpiece. It's also how that could be translated. God made us 
for himself. And so, of course, we won't be satisfied by anything but God. All other things will come up short. There are lots of good gifts to be enjoyed. God has given great creation for us to enjoy, but they cannot ultimately satisfy. But the sad reality we see all around us is that the worldly method is enjoy the creation without the creator. Enjoy creation without the creator. And yet, story after story shows that this doesn't work. It always leaves us empty. It always leaves us unsatisfied. It always leaves us longing and wanting more. Again, I, I borrow from Pastor J.D. Greer and looking to, he quotes two really quotes, quotes that drove this home for me. One is from comedian and actor Jim Carrey, who said, he was quoted as saying, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. rich and famous and accomplish everything you've ever dreamed of. Why? So you can see. It's not there. It's not the answer. It doesn't fill you up. The other was an interview that I thought was pretty timely. It's an interview with Tom Brady some years ago from 60 Minutes, back when he had only won three Super Bowls. And um, I remember watching this interview and and thinking this. But uh, Greer records the interview is happening. Steve Croft, the interviewer, asked Brady, this whole upward trajectory, um, I'm curious, what have you learned about yourself? And Brady's answer is haunting. Tom Brady, one of the most accomplished football players of all time, probably the greatest quarterback to ever play the game, said this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reach my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. And what else is there for me? The interviewer paused and said, well, what's the answer? Brady smiled for a moment. Then he paused and the smile faded. And he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Even the pinnacle of success cannot satisfy. Even all the earthly accomplishments we can garner cannot satisfy. There's something more. We were made for something more. That something is God. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we rejoice and have gladness all our days. When we make the creation In the place of the creator, it leaves us empty. But when we rightly order God, joy and gladness will follow all of our lives, no matter what the situation or circumstance. Moses saw this. In verse 15, he alludes to it. Moses knew there was affliction affliction and evil. 400 years of slavery. People of Israel in Egypt. Hardship, getting out of Egypt. Hardship in the wilderness. Disobedience that led to discipline. Moses knew evil and affliction and hardship. And yet he can still pray and say, God, take this evil. And for all the days that we've experienced affliction, let it be gladness. 
For all the days we've seen evil, let it be gladness. Why? Because when God is our satisfaction, then everything else falls in line as it should be. God wastes nothing. Not even our affliction and our hardship and our pain. So the question for us, then, is will we waste what God has given us? That leads to the last thing Moses wants us to see. He says, live for what really matters and you gain significance. Verses 16 and 17. Live for what really matters and you gain significance. Significance. Moses closes this prayer asking God for generational and enduring blessing. You see what he's getting at here? When he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses is looking forward and he's praying and he says to see the work and power of God is a blessing. And I want that blessing to outlive me. His sights are set beyond his own morning and evening before God. He sees there's something much greater. And so he is praying for a blessing he'll probably never see. And in fact, we know this directly from Moses' circumstance, right? That he disobeyed God himself and found himself on the end of God's discipline. And God said, you'll see the promised land, but you'll never get there. The people will get there after you. But that's it. And so Moses knows something about having a great goal left unfulfilled. He knows something about praying for something and leading and working for something of which he will never see. And so out of this, he can pray and ask God for blessing he'll never take part in because he knows that's what leads to significance. He knows that's what will matter because it's a blessing that will endure beyond him because it's rooted in God and will lead to blessing for other people. Do we only live for what we see now? It's a haunting question that I started asking myself as I was reading these last few verses. Think about your life. Do you live only for what you see now in front of you? If so, Moses says, how foolish. How short-sighted. We must learn to live for God's glory and blessing we may never see. This often means we'll be forced to make a choice. God's blessing or the world's blessing? Which will you choose? Jesus told us over and over, mutually exclusive, at least most of the time. <laughs> said, you want to gain your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Do we want God's blessing Or do we want the world's blessing? And it's real easy to say, well, of course I want God's blessing. Right? It's real easy to give lip service to that. But what does your life actually show? Are you choosing to live a life that shows, that portrays you want God's blessing? Are you just giving lip service to it? I think it's a lot like the paradoxical nature of the gospel. And I think of Ecuadorian missionary Jim Elliott. He gave his life, martyrdom, and died in the Ecuadorian 
jungles. But before that, he was able to pin and say, he is no fool who gives that he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It is not foolish to give up the things you can't keep anyway, to gain the thing which you can never lose. For those of us that want to live for what really matters, stop chasing after temporary, temporal blessings that you will lose anyway. And seek the things that really matter. Live for what has eternal significance, God's kingdom and God's work. When we ask blessing for others, we receive it. That's what Moses was looking to. He says here, I love this, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. It should be translated the beauty as well. The beauty of God be upon us. Why else would he ask for that except for that Moses knows he wants people to see them and not see them, but see God. God, let your beauty, your favor be upon us so that whoever encounters us will encounter you. God, we want your glory to so shine through us that whoever we come in contact with is blessed by you. Seize your glory. It's blessing that begets more blessing. And he knows that's what he's living for. He asks for this. And he asks for the work that they do to be lasting. God, let it be established. Establish the work of our hands. Let our work be lasting beyond this brief morning and evening. Let it have significance beyond what I can see right now. And what we see in Moses and what Jesus tells us later is that work that is done in God will last because it has eternal significance. Work that's done in God will last because it's not fleeting. It's not based in situation or circumstance, but it's rooted in God. And so with our eternal God, it has eternal significance. We can't waste time. There is kingdom work to be done. Brothers, sisters, what are you doing with your life today? How are you living? Have you considered these questions that Moses is asking? Have you prayed these prayers? Are you living for God's kingdom or for the worldly kingdom? There's kingdom work to be done. So let's get to work. Friends, we can't waste time. Share the gospel. Make disciples. Do justice. And give your life to tell those who have never heard the good news of Jesus. When we live for these things, it'll outlast us. This is the work we can only do if God is in it. So let's join with Moses and pray for God to bless us to be a blessing. And to establish the work of our hands. I want to close by telling you one more story of another man who, like Moses, was born into much wealth. Like Moses, he had a lot in his early days. And this young man, late 1800s, was born and grew up uh, an heir to a great fortune. And when he graduated high school, his parents were so rich, they literally could could give him the world. They bought him a trip around the world. Uh, That's a lot of money, y'all. And he went on this trip, but something very unexpected happened. When he went on the trip, he saw people outside of himself for the first time. And he saw brokenness. And he saw people dying apart from the love of Jesus. And God 
broke his heart. God changed him in that moment. And when he got back to the dismay of his parents and family and friends, he told them, I'm sorry, I can no longer take this inheritance and I will not take over the family business. My life is not my own, it's God's. I'm going to go and give my life in service to God as a missionary in China. Some of you may know this young man's name was William Borden. He was the heir to the great Borden milk fortune, and this rocked the world at the time. There were headlines literally declaring how foolish it is, this guy throwing away all that money, all that potential. Can you believe it? Borden didn't listen. He continued, he finished seminary, and he went on his way to serve in China. But he needed to learn Arabic, so he stopped in Egypt first. Shortly after arriving, he contracted spinal meningitis and at the age of 25, died before he ever reached China. People railed. Oh, what a wasted life. What a wasted life. Can you believe it? On his deathbed, before he had passed, somebody came to him and asked, William, do you think um, you would do anything different? You think your life has been wasted? And it's reported that he couldn't even speak, but he took his Bible and wrote in the back, no regrets. No regrets. I think even more stirring, and what I want to leave us with today is the quote that's on his tombstone in a grave site that's all but buried in Egypt. Written on this tombstone says, apart from faith in Christ, There is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Brothers and sisters, I pray this would be true for you and for me. May God grant us the blessing to live our lives in such a way that the world can only explain our lives by looking to Jesus and saying it must be him. Join with me in prayer. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that you have given us life in Jesus. Thank you that you have bought us back, that we have redemption in you, that we can know you, God, and live to make you known. Oh, Lord, I pray this prayer of Moses would weigh heavy on our hearts. God, we would take seriously the call that you've given us. Lord, help us to consider you're infinite, you're the eternal God and we are finite. Help us to remember that we are sinners and you rightly have anger against sin, but God, you give us mercy and life in and through Jesus. So help us to face death and gain wisdom. Help us to be satisfied, you, and know joy and help us to live for what really matters, God, and gain eternal significance. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Would you bless what we do from here to go out and to continue to live for you, Lord. To the glory of your name and the good of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.